This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, September 15th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Town Council talks road improvements, Telluride works to streamline construction approvals, a day in the life of a miner with Finton Coal and a mountain weather forecast. Rights-of-way improvements are coming to the southwest corner of Telluride. The improvements are part of the town's southwest area conceptual plan. To find opportunities for new affordable housing, uh, new parking arrangements, and creating a vibrant neighborhood, a future neighborhood that would be um, useful for the future residents and the existing residents. That's Ron Quarles, Planning and Building Director for the Town of Telluride, speaking before Town Council this week. In addition to parking and housing, the conceptual plan identifies a need for improvements to roads in the area, including Pacific Avenue, Mahoney Drive, Tomboy and Davis Streets, and the Davis Main Street intersection. Uh, either new striping for left and right turn lanes or or movements, or a mini roundabout. If the town chooses to go with a roundabout, town manager Scott Robson says there are ways to pilot a roundabout before full infrastructure goes in. Through really um, plastic delineators and markings. Um, so it is a, an idea that Public Works is um, considering if, if we move down it, really any of these routes as far as a Davis and Colorado uh, pilot case. So that's kind of nice to know we could test something out before we go um, hardscape with it. But the majority of conversation surrounds Pacific Avenue, specifically the portion of road that is one way between Davis and Mahoney. Coral says they need to decide whether to keep Pacific one way in that area or change it to two ways. Uh, they looked at the one way east, east flow, the current flow, and uh, determined that with the new redevelopment, with the redevelopment that would occur, all of the intersections would continue to perform at acceptable levels. Quarles says staff supports keeping Pacific one way, but with improvements to help with safety. With designs that would in, would ensure circulation, safety, and functionality. We're recommending 22 feet of hardscape surface um, to accommodate at least 12 feet, a uh, 12 foot lane for travel, travel lane, and then an adjoining 10 foot concrete by pedestrian path. He says there would be a new transit drop-off location at the bridge to Cimarron Lodge, landscaping enhancements, and a redirection of the river trail to the south side of the river between Carhenge and Mahoney. Finally, we are recommending that this design incorporate um, or accommodate um, two-way emergency vehicles in the cases of emergencies where there are no other uh, traffic alternatives. Um, this is something that we, we feel is important for the overall design of this project. Council was on the whole supportive of staff's recommendation to keep the road one way. Here's council member Dan Enright. I will say that I think that this falls under the if you build it, they will come category. That if we build a two-way, then, then that use will just sort of Increase. manifest itself and happen. And if we can keep it a one way and that works well enough for this neighborhood and for traffic flow in town in general, that's my overall preference is, is a one way 
should it continue to work. But council member Geneva Shawnette disagrees. How many times is Main Street closed and everybody has to leave town on Galena? And the, and if Pacific was two-way, you could go either way to get out of town and around a street closure. So I think it's a way to improve circulation for the entire town, not just this expansion. While the majority of council is in favor of keeping Pacific one way, Tuesday's work session didn't include definitive plans on what the improvements will look like. The next step is for town council to include any capital road projects into the 2023 budget. It seems that construction projects, from residential tune-ups to large public developments, are either planned or underway in every corner of Telluride. But navigating Telluride's complicated zoning laws can be a challenge, so the Historic and Architectural Review Commission is trying to simplify the process, both for the applicants and for themselves. With a report on the proposed changes, KOTO's Gavin McGough has more. With lots of ongoing construction, it's been a busy summer for the Historic and Architectural Review Commission. It hasn't helped that the board was at one point short three members. Speaking before town council this week, Telluride's Director of Historic Preservation, Jonna Wenzel, explains changing which projects need HARC approval could be beneficial for all parties involved. And the intent of these changes is really just to better streamline the HARC review process. It seems that we can make it better for applicants, um, HARC, and staff. Potential construction projects are broken down by their size, as well as their location in town, and their proximity to the historic district. Wenzel explained that with the proposed changes, HARC would no longer take a preliminary look at certain projects. We propose to remove the review and recommendations for preliminary large-scale, small-scale, and minor-scale subdivisions, and perhaps preliminary large-scale and small-scale PUDs. Town Council agrees and recommends reducing HARC's input on subdivisions and minor PUDs. A PUD is a planned unit development, which is most often a housing project. Council member Adrian Christie wants to go a step further and remove HARC from reviewing large-scale PUDs as well as small-scale ones. HARC might still have an opportunity to comment on projects elsewhere in the process. Christie explains. I, I, I understand the um, not wanting to relinquish power because ultimately that's what it is. They're allowed to vote on this and say yay or nay on certain things, but like I just don't, I don't think it's necessary. And that HARC should be included in a different point in the process that to me feels more appropriate for them to be able to just openly speak about mass and scale in a work session, just talk about the project. Council members voted in agreement with Christie to limit HARC's input on large-scale PUDs. Other changes being considered included focusing HARC's energy on projects within town's historic district. Small-scale projects outside the district could be overseen by the chair and the vice chair only, instead of the entire board, Wenzel says. So that doesn't mean HARC won't review projects outside the historic district. It just means that, um, for example, a pretty standard application for, let's say, a 2,000 square foot house um, outside the historic district could be reviewed by the chairperson, perhaps, rather than the full board, so that the board is not taking time for 
an application that's very usually very quickly and simply reviewed. Christie explains that even though the entire board would no longer oversee those projects, the decision wouldn't necessarily fall on the board president alone. And I think for the listening public, if you're not following Hark all the time, like I have concerns about one person having a lot of power in that situation, but but staff always provides comments and recommendations, and then that is what the chair is responding to. So it's not like there's one person making the call on historic preservation in our community. In other conclusions from the work session, town council members recommend increasing the stipend for HARC members to reflect the time they invest in their positions. That stipend would increase to $300 a month for board members and $450 for board chairs. Wenzel notes that this recommendation came from town staff and not the board itself. Um, No one seems to have very strong feelings about this one way or the other, so... (laughs) On the commission? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not a significant amount of money. No one's going to quit their job and do hard full time on this um, stipend. It is, it is a show from the town to heart compensi of appreciation for the time invested in these boards. All of the recommended changes are at this point just proposals. Hark and the Planning and Zoning Commission will have the opportunity to discuss town council's recommendations on their own before anything becomes town law. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. Sports are in full swing in the Telluride School District. This This week on A Day in the Life of a Minor, Telluride High School's Finton Cole brings the latest on soccer and volleyball. You can't touch this. Look at my eyes, man. You can't touch this. This is Fenton Cole on your sports update. On September 11, 2001, two planes hijacked the World Trade Center towers in New York City. Nearly 3,000 people were killed in the terrorist attacks, with countless more injured. To pay our respect to the ones who were killed that day, please join us in a moment of silence for those lost on 9-11. Thank you. Boys Varsity Soccer defeated the Basalt Longhorns 2-1 with all goals coming in the first half. However, in their next two games, they lost one against the Denver Christian Thunder 2-1 in overtime and the other to the Loveland Lions 1-0. They played the Caprock Academy Eagles and won by a score of 7-1, but they lost to the Vail Mountain Rangers 6-0 and to the Wildcats 3-1. They have a road game against the Crested Butte Titans and a home game against the Rocky Mountain Oysters in hopes to improve their seasonal record. Girls Varsity Volleyball has started rough with only one victory out of five games, and that victory was against the Debec Dragons 2-1. The other games that ended in losses were against the Mancos Blue Jays 2-0, the Rangeley Panthers 2-0, the Cedar Edge Bruins 2-1, and the Dove Creek Bulldogs 3-0. They played the Ridgeway Demons and won three to nothing. The Olave Pirates and lost two to one. The Sergeant Farmers and won two to nothing. And the Nucla Mustangs and lost two to one. The game against the Gunnison Cowboys has yet to be decided, but the team lost to Ignacio three to nothing. They have six more games to go before the September month ends. Tune in next week for more minor sports updates. I'm Fenton Cole reporting live from Telluride High School, and we'll see you next week.
The old saying that opportunity only knocks once doesn't seem to apply for the Telluride Green Grants program. EcoAction Partners is excited to announce a fourth round of grants coming up in 2023 to support local residents and businesses looking to reduce their carbon footprint. Awards range from $500 to $35,000 and are available to qualified applicants. The grants are aimed at helping individuals, nonprofits, and businesses fund anything which might lower their use of greenhouse gases. Past projects have funded energy efficient heating systems, community composting programs, and the replacement of drafty windows in historic buildings across town. If you've got an idea or an eco-minded project, big or small, application materials are available at ecoactionpartners.org. Applications are due by November 13th. Colorado's minimum wage will jump more than a dollar next year. The State Department of Labor and Employment announced on Tuesday the new hourly minimum wage will be $13.65 starting in January. The government adjusts wages for inflation each year because of a voter-approved mandate in 2017. Adjustments are based on consumer prices in the Denver metro area. Telluride is one of the top eight ski resorts in the country. That's according to Family Skier, an online magazine for family-oriented skiers and riders. Family Skier notes Telski's expansive terrain for all levels, as well as Telluride's history as a mining town, shops, and restaurants. Telluride joins Aspen, Steamboat Springs, Park City, Utah, Whitefish, Montana, Jackson, Wyoming, Sun Valley, Idaho, and Stowe, Vermont as the top family-friendly ski towns in the U.S. New research has uncovered more on the history of Moab pioneer William Grandstaff. The black cowboy made his home on the Colorado Plateau in the late 1800s. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KZMU's Justin Higginbottom speaks to a genealogist, a composer, and a museum curator, helping to map Grandstaff's life from slave to frontier settler. Grandstaff Canyon is an oasis between the sandstone fins and red cliffs on this side of the Colorado River. There's a perennial stream and lush vegetation. Even on a blazing summer day, it's cool and shaded. Gerald Elias first visited the canyon in the 80s with his family. And we just loved it because it was cool and the kids could walk in the water and it was just a lovely hike. But it, that was my first connection with William Grandstaff. I had no idea that his name was William Grandstaff at that point. Elias is a violinist and writer. He was concertmaster of the Utah Symphony. And like others in Moab, he was intrigued by the canyon's namesake, a black cowboy pioneer that ran cattle in this remote area of the country. Well, one of the things that intrigued me was that there were so many different stories about him, and I didn't know which were true and which were, you know, just fabricated just, you know, legend. So we began researching and composing. Since 2014, Elias has written three pieces about Grandstaff's life for the Moab Music Festival. You're listening to one of those compositions now. Who am I? Who is William Grandstaff? Grandstaff's story goes like this. 
He arrived in Moab in the mid to late 1870s. There were few non-native inhabitants of the area at that time. A Mormon mission was abandoned in the 1850s. He had his cattle right here in Grand Staff Canyon, which was perfect because of we've got the stream here, and also it's a, a slot canyon, so the cattle couldn't go anywhere. You know, so it was, it was perfect for him. Eventually, there was some tension with the white settlers in the area. According to legend, he was accused of selling liquor to the Native Americans. Pressure got so high, he left everything, including his cattle, and hightailed it to Colorado. There's one quote, supposedly by him, that when he was told that the white settlers were up in arms to go after the Indians, he purportedly said, I think I'm the Indian that they're after. And that's, that's when he left. Records show he ended up in Glenwood Springs and was a saloon owner. He then tried his luck at prospecting. And over the course of time, he became kind of a hermit and had a little cabin up in the mountains all by himself and sadly kind of faded away. His body was found in 1901. He had died there and no one had known about it for a few weeks till they discovered his body. This period of Grand Staff's life has largely been a part of Moab lore, but what was unclear was where he had come from, how a black cowboy ended up here not long after the Civil War. For Elias's latest composition, he worked with genealogist Nick Sheedy to dive into Grand Staff's pre-Moab days. And so the main record groups that I would search are U.S. censuses, state censuses, vital records, which would be births, deaths, marriage records. When you get back to the slave era, the most important record group are probate records, wills, and estate inventories. Chidi researches ancestry for the PBS show Finding Your Roots. His expertise is in African-American history. I would say with pretty good confidence that he was held in slavery by a man named George Grandstaff in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. It's unknown how Grandstaff escaped slavery. He could have run away, or he might have been freed. There's evidence that Grandstaff was part white, and Sheedy thinks it's possible that the slave owner was his father. As a free man, Grandstaff ended up in Ohio and joined the Union cause. Served in a company called the Black Brigade in Cincinnati, and that was a um, local kind of a home guard that local African Americans organized to protect Cincinnati from what was perceived to be a pending Confederate attack during the Civil War. That was 1862 or so. He married there and had at least two daughters, but then he leaves his family and goes to Nebraska and then further west to Moab. But it kind of typifies, I think, some of these guys who got itchy feet and went west looking for greener pastures, and I think that's the case here. Grandstaff's life as a black cowboy in the western frontier isn't as unique as you would guess by watching old westerns. He's not the only black cowboy. He's not the only black frontiersman in the west, and that's a facet of history that's really gotten a lot more recognition in recent years, and that's really exciting and something to celebrate. That's Mary Langworthy of the Moab Museum. She's showing me a new exhibit featuring Elias and Sheedy's research. Historians estimate that across the U.S., one in four cowboys probably was black. And that really defies the image that we have in our brain. Visitors can trace Grandstaff's life chronologically along a red ribbon. Blue ribbons branch off to show copies of documents used in the research. At the back wall, there are some cowboy artifacts from that time period, like a wooden saddle tree. There's kind of a, a heavy-handed metaphor here of we know one in four cowboys was likely black and plausibly 
maybe one in four of these tools could have belonged to a black cowboy. Kind of a reminder that the, the anonymity of these objects kind of parallels the anonymity of the people who use them. Grand Staff's life is just one story from those early Moab days, but the more that is uncovered, the more fascinating it becomes. Here's Elias again. So he started out as a, a boy, as a, a slave or, or freed slave, became a soldier in Ohio, then made his way to Utah, where he was a, a rancher and a farmer and a trader, and then to Colorado, where he was a saloon owner and a prospector. I mean, that, that's really remarkable. They called me something different. That can't be repeated in polite company. You know, there are probably a lot of people at that time, and even these times, who really have to do whatever they can to survive. And so I, I think Grand Staff, you know, represents someone who, who really, you know, he, he knew how to do things and he accomplished things. And, uh, you know, he was a survivor. There are reminders around Moab to make sure his memory survives, like the Grand Staff Trailhead. And a couple of the oldest buildings in Moab are tied to him. That includes an old ice house on the property of Moab Springs Ranch. That building now houses a modern ice machine. With this new research, music, and exhibit, there will be even more reminders. And Grand Staff's life will move further from legend and closer to history. Justin Higginbottom, Rocky Mountain Community Radio. Long-range weather forecasts for the Colorado River Basin show a good chance of La Nina conditions this winter. KUNC's Alex Hager reports that could bring less rain and snow to the southwest. Cold water in the Pacific Ocean is pushing towards the surface, changing weather patterns above our region for the third straight year. Typically, that means colder, wetter winters for the northwestern portion of the country and a warmer, drier winter in the southwest. But the dividing line falls right around Colorado. Ben Livna is the director of the Western Water Assessment. By itself, it doesn't really... I would say not enough information, simply because we've had wet La Nina years, we've had dry La Nina years. Winter snow in the mountains of Colorado supplies the majority of the water in the Colorado River, which would need years of above-average snowfall to escape the ongoing drought. I'm Alex Hager. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight, with mostly clear skies and a low in the mid-40s. Friday calls for sunny skies with a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms and a high around 65 degrees. Friday night there's a 10% chance of showers and thunderstorms with mostly clear skies and a low around 45. Saturday should be sunny and clear with a high in the mid-60s and a low around 45 degrees. This has been the news for Thursday, September 15th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, Call the news team at 970-728-3206. KOTO News will be off on Friday for our annual broadcast of the Telluride Blues and Brews Festival. Tune in to KOTO's live broadcast from Town Park starting Friday morning and running through Sunday night. Listen over the airwaves or online at koto.org. We'll be back with more news on Monday, September 19th.